Welcome to the show. We have a living legend today, Mark Farner, formerly of Grand Funk Railroad. He is the singer, guitarist, and primary songwriter for that band. Uh, but of course, now he has a solo career. And uh, with Grand Funk Railroad, he sold millions of records. And they actually sold out Shea Stadium in New York faster than the Beatles did. Uh, they had two number one songs, were an American band and their cover of Locomotion, plus tons of other hits. And uh, despite Mark's success, he's had some bad luck along the way, including some bad business dealings and being cut out of the band. Uh, his son died. Mark himself died twice while having a pacemaker put in. And I'm fascinated to understand how he still has such a positive outlook on life. And he isn't mad at anyone or the universe. So it's very interesting to hear his outlook on life and his philosophy. Uh, he's a very spiritual guy and he has some really fascinating stories. So check it out. Welcome, Mark Farner, to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. How the heck are you? I'm proud to be sucking air, brother Chuck. <laughs> That's good, especially in this day and age with all the COVID and some people aren't sucking air. So it's yeah, good to hear you, that you're healthy. You're, stay, you're staying away from that stuff? or Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. That's good. So, yeah, let's, I mean, you got this whole story. It's amazing. There's like ups and downs. And I mean, it really starts, I think, back when you were a kid and you're playing football and you injure yourself and your mom buys you a guitar because you can't play football. And that's when you started playing music, right? That's exactly right. I had it in me prior to that. I had the love for music because every weekend my mother, uh, either at her house, at our house on Davison Road in Flint, Michigan, we'd have a jam session or at my aunt Dorothy's, who was my mother's sister, her only sister. But, uh, it was going to be one place or the other. And we were going to have a jam session where they had the banjo and violin and guitars. And my dad blew saxophone, but all the women sang beautiful, this harmony, man, the family, you know, there's something about family harmony. And I was in love with music as a young boy uh, growing up. I, I just, man, it was really touching my soul what they were doing. And I thought that someday it'd be nice to learn how to play an instrument like that. But I wasn't really into it at the time. Uh, my age caused me to be into women uh, coming after me because I'm a football player. Sure. <laughs> Rather than a guy in the marching band behind a, a tuba. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and then is it true that your guitar teacher blew his foot off with a 12-gauge shotgun? Yes. I yeah. mean, what? The, there's so much crazy stuff going on. Yeah, well, that, you know, was uh, the October 20th was opening day of ringneck pheasant season in Michigan back then. And uh, we had a lot of ringneck pheasant in, a, in our state. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, people bringing in, you know, 10 birds. There was so many. Uh, but anyways, he tried climbing a fence with a 12 gauge in his hand. And that was like one of the first things I learned in the gun safety is if you got to climb a fence, you take that gun two posts down and lean it. And then you go down two posts, climb over, go down and retrieve the weapon. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's like gun safety. That's, that's in the rules. <laughs> sure. So anyways, you continue to play music. Now tell me this story. I don't know if I thought I caught this a little bit. You saying something about getting kicked out of high school. You had a confrontation with a teacher. What happened there? Well, the Holy Rosary school finished out their day. They did the first half of the, their 
school day at Holy Rosary. And then they would come up and finish off at Kersley High School uh, the last half of the day. So at when it was uh, lunch hour, the Holy Rosary bus rolled up and the guy who was the football coach was standing over near the doorway where these Holy Rosary kids came through. And I was standing across the hallway over by the library in front of uh, this heat register that we all hung out around because, of course, it was warm. And uh, he hollers over to me. He says, Farner, move your boys. And I go, I looked at the, my friends and I said, these are not my boys. And, uh, you know, and he came over. He was so pissed. He grabbed a hold of me, threw me up against the wall. And my head like ricocheted off the brass picture frame of the superintendent of schools. I had a light on it and it was a big, but I reached back there and this guy has still got me by the collar like this. And I reached behind me because it, it hurt, buddy. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt the wetness. And when I saw the blood on my hand, I hit him and it opened up his, uh, it like a unzipped his eyelid. It fell down over the top of his eye. And he started after he got back up off the floor, he was throwing haymakers. If he would have ever contacted, he would have knocked me cuckoo, but I would duck and duck. And, and as I'm timing it, I'm, I'm going to hit him again. I, I got it in my mind. This is, if this guy's coming after me like this, this is only one way to stop this. And so I draw back and I'm going to, and my friend goes, don't Farner. He says, geez, you're in enough trouble already. Don't hit him again. My God, you idiot. <laughs> so, um, wow. I went back with, with a lawyer I went back in front of the school board and the lawyer, uh, at the time, uh, the, this algebra teacher who was a football coach told the school board that if they allowed me to come back into school, that he was going to resign. Mm. So then the attorney looks over at me and he says, yeah, he's got kind of long hair and sideburns too. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking you, buttwad, you're supposed to be on my side. Oh yeah. My right. Wow. So that was the end of that. So is that when you started playing in, um, in bands? It was one of your first bands you played with Dick Wagner, who's Alice Cooper's guitar player, right? And he's the one that taught you how to write music or inspired you, said, told you you could do it, basically. Yes, that's right. And, uh, but, but Dick Wagner, I was with him playing rhythm guitar for about a year uh, before I went to play bass guitar for Terry Knight and the Pack. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you, you formed the, the fabulous pack, um, you know, three kids from Flint, Michigan. And, uh, you know, there's this whole thing with the snowstorm and, you know, a couple of your band members, the wives threatened to divorce them. So that's when you guys decided to, uh, get some new members and you're just going to have three people. That's what probably a lot of people wonder why there's only three people in grand funk It's because you just wanted these three people that were all in it. You know, they weren't going to have their wives trying to kick them out of the band and, and, uh, you formed grand funk, right? That's right. We said, no women, no, we can't have any players that even got a girlfriend. <laughs> wow. We were like 19 at the time. And Mel Shocker was 18 when, uh, when we started. So, yeah. And so is it true? Your first gig was at Atlanta pop festival in 1969. Your, your lawyer attorney got you on the festival, 180,000 people. Is that right? 
yes, that is that is exactly right. And the the uh, adventure getting to Atlanta, Georgia, from Flint, Michigan, uh, we borrowed our friend's van and got a U-Haul trailer. Uh, not only did our friends supply the van, but he also supplied a driver. And Jimmy drove us because we took off at night, uh, ha- you know, and anticipated driving all night. And then in the morning, um, one of us would take over driving. So I was riding shotgun and I I opened my eyes. It, w- it wasn't daylight yet, but I could see a sign that says, I-75 and an arrow to the right. Well, at this time, I-75 was not done. It was just we had to take a lot of back roads and what have you. So I I go, I-75 to the right like this. And and Jimmy, the driver, just cranks that wheel. And that U-Haul trailer that was behind the van flipped down through the ditch. The safety chains, there was no, uh, they don't have any strength. (laughs) They wouldn't hold a trailer on. Anyways, uh. We had to unload all the equipment, right the trailer, put it back on its two wheels, then load all the equipment back into it, hook it on the vehicle, and we're kind of nursing down the the, uh, apron of the road on the side there, and probably about 40 miles an hour, and this tire passes us. It came off the trailer and went right past us, and we had to go retrieve that, pull lug nuts off the one side that still had the tire, we took a couple of lug nuts off of that one and put on uh, the the one that came off, and we just just nursed it down the shoulder of the road to the next exit, which had a a U-Haul trailer rental place, and we were so lucky. I mean, that was a that was a stroke right there. Uh, but we switched all of our equipment out, and at that time we could see that there was a lot of broken stuff, but. We didn't have time to look at it or repair it or anything. We, all we had time to do was transfer it and pedal to the metal to get to Atlanta on time. And when we pulled up in Atlanta, Georgia, then they, the roadies opened the back of that trailer, started pulling amp heads out. They'd take the cases apart. The transformers that were formerly on the chassis of these amplifiers were ripped off. The, the wires were broken. Uh, there were busted circuit boards and our roadiers are standing there going, Oh my God, what are we going to do? But at this time, the community of rock and roll was so badass that the roadies from all of these other bands that were there, hmm. they saw that we needed some help right now. And they came to our rescue. It was like, Oh, that's awesome. Like mash 4077, man. They came in and they repaired our stuff. It was duct taped together. The, the cases that were cracked are, you know, duct taped and the amp heads, but it worked and it worked for us. It worked really good. And we used it for three days of that festival. Started at noon, the opening day. They didn't want us to leave the stage. We started at seven o'clock. Uh, p.m. The, the following day, and then the, the last night of the festival was 11 o'clock at night under the full lights, and uh, we were grand funk, man, from that's, then on. <laughs> that's awesome. So then, yeah, you guys have a lot of success. You, you sh- uh, sell out Shea Stadium, but then in 73, you work with uh, Todd Rundgren. Tell me about working with him, because I had uh, Joey 
from Badfinger on here. And he said that it was like, it was rough working with that guy. And he had a story about it telling me that, he, you know, years later he would see Todd Rundgren. He said, you know, you were kind of a jerk to us. And then Todd Rundgren said, no, that's just how you remember it. <laughs> and then Joey kind of laughed and thought, well, that's kind of a funny way to put it. But did you have any kind of those experiences with him or? No, uh, the only experience that, that we, you know, memorable experience that we had were, were all good. I had gone home to eat lunch, which I had a farmhouse across the street from the studio. Right. And when, on my way back to the studio, the guys were out in the parking lot. I couldn't see them because the woods were in the way, but I could hear them out there. And I just start singing, man, as I'm walking. It's a sunny day, beautiful, a little bit of breeze. Everybody's doing a brand new dance. You know, and the guys are out in the, the parking lot. And they're going, come on, baby. And they're doing the background vocals, you know. And uh, and as I come around the corner and I can now see the guys, they've been out in the parking lot, they had a smoke, and they're out there having, you know, some conversation. And as they're singing and I'm singing to them, Rundgren walks out the end door of the studio and he says, what the hell is that? And I said, what is that? That's little evil, man. That's a locomotion. He says, you guys get in here right now because we're going to cut the locomotion. That song has got to be cut right now. And so he goes in, starts the, you know, it's a 24 track reel to reel. He hits the red button and comes out into the studio with us. And he's playing in the ashtrays together and singing all the high falsetto parts. And he, uh, during my solo in the locomotion he grabbed my echoplex with the tape head and he would move it from one end to the other of that echoplex and he go yum, 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 yum. And it sounded like the guitar was eating itself you know hmm. and, and he was just having a ball and every time he'd do it he'd have this wild look in his eyes <laughs> it was crazy wow well it worked yeah you guys had some good songs with that and then you know obviously probably your biggest hit were an American band. Now Brewer got a hundred percent songwriting credit, but I, did I hear you say that you helped write that song? You, but you let him have all the credit. Yes. I, uh, it, I am responsible for the cowbell and it got in, in Rolling Stone magazine. It was rated number two in cowbell songs, only superseded by honky tonk women. Hmm. And I wrote, the drum lick on the intro, that's my drum lick. I wrote all of the chord changes, da, 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 all that stuff, the background vocals. I I composed all that. And because I'm a nice guy, when he said, Farner, I have never had 100% right credit on any song. Do you mind if I take it on this? I said, go ahead. Hmm. Because I am a nice guy. You I are, Yeah. I try, I practice being nice. It is my goal to be nice. And even though I've been screwed over by people who took my niceness as a way to uh, further themselves, uh, even though that's happened, it doesn't make me want to stop being nice. It, wa it makes me want to continue because whatever uh, somebody does uh, because of your niceness, it doesn't come back to haunt you. It comes back to haunt them. Well, let's, yeah, let's talk about that then, because I mean, you guys had some bad business dealings um, with Terry Knight 
first of all. Um, you know, he had this thing where he was telling you that you guys were making more than the Beatles, but that was all bullshit. And he was stealing an extra 10 per- He said it was a uh, 6%, but it was actually the deal was 16%. He was keeping an extra 10%. And then did it was he the one that screwed you over with this thing in Europe where they said they're going to pull this money in a Swiss bank account and you just yeah. never saw the money? Exactly. How is yeah. that? And you couldn't come after him for that? You couldn't sue him or anything? Or? Well, when we finally discovered and had the evidence, then we contacted John Eastman, attorney, New York City, uh, Linda Eastman, Paul McCartney's first wife, hmm. uh, her her brother, oh. John Eastman, was our attorney. And uh, he said, this is going to hang you guys up unless we can ha- and somehow settle it out of court. It's going to hang you up and all- there's going to be all of the all of this evidence, all these things that they're going to want to put on hold. And you're going to you're not going to be able to do anything until the court settles the case and determines what can be done with this and that, whatever, unless we can settle it out of court. So we said, well, whatever you do, settle it out of court because we don't want to be tied down. We don't want to be strapped here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for the rest of our life, here we are, uh, dry dock someplace. So you did get it all settled then? Yes. And you actually forgave Terry for that, which is like mind-boggling to me, because I would be so angry. Did he apologize, though? No, he, he didn't apologize. I I don't think he knew what to do with it when I told him that I had forgiven him, because he just didn't have that. He didn't tick that way. He did not huh. uh, uh, have it within him to to realize that I had set myself free. Um, you know, when you exercise forgiveness, you can't believe what comes back to you as a result of that. And it's you. It's irrevocable. <laughs> it, you couldn't sidestep it if you wanted to, because it's from God. And love is a rewarder of those who diligently seek it. And I have been diligently seeking it. And uh, there's no there's no love expression in hateful things or trying to do something to get back at or retaliate in some way. Uh, so but how I, do you how do you let that go? I just I don't know if I could if I could just let it go like that. I don't know if I could forgive like how do you, do you is there some sort of like mantra that you say to yourself or how do you, how do you just let that the feeling doesn't just make you angry when you think about it well we are our natural composition is from love when when those babies come out of the womb they don't have you know knives in their teeth and guns in their hand you got to teach kids how to do shit like this but we are from love. We came from love to earth, and we then have to deal with all this encumbrance that debt consciousness puts us. It's it's a puts us in a snafu because here we are. Our composition is love, and now we're being compelled to believe that if we don't do this or you know, something that there's going to be some repercussions. And, and so we go, Oh my God, repercussions. I thought I was free. Wait a minute. <laughs> and then, um, you start discovering, 
that debt consciousness, not just monetary debt, Chuck, but the debt of uh, unfulfilled expectations. When people expect you to do things and you don't do it, and they put you on the shit list. Mm-hmm. That's another form of that. And, and all this debt that we've encountered in our life is accumulative in its nature and it keeps weighing us down, but we don't have the vision. We don't have a, a scale with a damn needle saying, Oh, you're getting close to overload here. But uh, a lot of people have found that with the stress load and it's, uh, you know, stress their heart and they died because of it. I'm not one of those people. I have found uh, that debt is our enemy. It's worse than any other four-letter word you can imagine. In fact, look that word up in a in a old, like a Webster's Dictionary, something from, look that word up. It takes pages and pages and pages. Oh, my God. It's uh, You cannot believe the encumbrance that it gets into with debt. But if we can dis- determine and decide what is a debt, unto us, we can actually cut that chain to that attachment and get rid of it. Because as soon as you discover it, it's gone. When you let yourself be that free person that you've been striving to be all of your life. Hmm. This is part of that forgiveness, Chuck, that I don't know. It just makes me feel better not to hold unforgiveness and hateful thoughts mm-hmm. that shit would eat my lunch dude yeah I, I want that power is my power i want to direct it in the way i determine and i have determined that it's going to be love that i serve from here out okay I'm not, I'm not gonna serve any of that shit it's it's just a you know, that makes sense it's kind of like this guy that I listened to and he talked about, you know, like when you go to the grocery store and, and you, maybe sometimes you see somebody that bothers you, like somebody that's overweight or not dressed well or whatever. It's like, instead of trying to be critical of that person is just project love onto that person. He's like, do that with everybody. And I was like, oh, that's like really interesting advice. But it's, it, I think it's kind of what you're saying is like, you just project love onto everything and everybody instead of trying to be critical or hateful or yeah. Yeah, man. And you find out that it's, more of a natural inclination than you had ever given it credit for being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you begin to practice that, you cannot avoid, you can't sidestep the reward. You just can't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, and then back into another, you know, business deal, you know, the whole thing with, with Grand Funk and how it ended, it's, it's so weird to me. First of all, 76, Brewer just comes in and says, hey guys, I need to do something more stable with my life. And he quits. I don't understand that. Cause again, like what, five or six years ago, you guys had sold out Shea stadium. Were you not, weren't you still doing well at that point? Why, why was he worried about not having stability? Well, I don't know where he was in his head. We never did figure that out. Um, uh, you know, he's just been a different kind of guy hmm. all his life. Uh, so, um, whatever it was, uh, we never got anything outside of those words that you just repeated. Uh, and then, and of course, after that, I started putting together my solo band and uh, got a deal with Atlantic Records for two albums and uh, was on my way. 
Yeah. So explain the, the solo uh, stuff and the, and the, like, uh, you know, you've done the Christian music, um, uh, but you found God kind of after a split with your wife, like you, and you didn't want the fire and brimstone churches. You wanted this church of lo- kind of like we just talked about with the love and, uh, you know, you'd split with your wife, you prayed for her to come back and, and she did. Yeah, it was, uh, that same day because I'd been in several churches, um, and like you mentioned, when they, when they start that hellfire and brimstone shit, I would get up and leave. <laughs> and my part of my test, Chuck, was I walk in, I got a headband on, long hair, a Hawaiian shirt, faded jeans and sneakers. If they could get past that and get to who I am, and if that didn't bother them, I might sit and listen. <laughs> but if they couldn't just get past, I could tell, you know. Just, uh, if somebody's looking at me like, where did this come come from? I just turn right around and go right back out. Uh, and I did that on, on a few occasions. Mm. Uh, but the the church that I got into was uh, AOG, Assembly of God. And it was a bunch of older people. They didn't know me from Adam. And, you know, when I walked in there, this, I guess he was at the time, 86-year-old pastor, yeah. Pastor Exley, and he was preaching on the institution of God's word in marriage and how people walk out the front door of the church. And instead of implementing all these oaths, these sacred oaths that we take with one another, it's like that is left behind at the altar and we walk out and start having this life. But but we don't take seriously those things that are said and their life commitments. And I'm going, God, this guy is killing the shit out of me. He's, <laughs> he's like shooting and he's got no blanks, man. He's got live rounds. And I'm thinking, God, did you put me in here for this? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, he's like preaching to me. And so when at the end of his service, he gave a, a altar call and I went up and I, I rededicated my life to God and, and to, to love. Because God is love, and and love is forgiveness. And I told him, uh, the pastor, I said, my wife, you know, she's been gone, and I kept thinking she was coming back, but obviously she's not coming back to me, and I've got my kids. My sister-in-law is watching them right now. I said, can you pray with me uh, for God to bring my wife back? He says, you pray, and I'll agree. So I just, you know, like we're talking here, I talked to God, and I said, you know, (coughs) If you bring bring her back to me, I sure would appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And that that day, fifty miles away uh, in the city where she was living, she gave her life to the Lord, and she became a Christian. And we got back together a couple of days after that, and uh, we've been to be- together forty three years, and it's the best forty three years I've ever spent. I mean, I could have never put. Uh, 43 years and and got the education, got the amount of love that I got from this woman. Uh, she is uh, in her native side. She is Chippewa. Our kids are all uh, tribal members, you know, and hmm. she has the, she has a native heart. She has her ear to the ground and she has uh, that, that perception that women have that, hmm men wish they had, uh, but we need them for that touch because yeah. how would we hear spiritual things without our women? 
Uh, and it is uh, the Cherokee men. Uh, it is a custom within the Cher- Cherokee nation that the Cherokee men esteem their wives to be equal with themselves. If you don't esteem that partner to be equal with you, how could you give all of yourself? You can't. Hmm. Wow. So if there's little reservation, you're not going to be able to give 100%. So you're only fooling yourself. You got to give 100%, abandon, reckless abandon, give it. If it's misused, uh, you know, if all those things that you thought was going to happen, the bad things do come to pass, there'll be something that supersedes them to pay the payoff, which will blow it out of the water by 10 times. And your reward is great. Really? Okay. Well, that's good. Good advice then. Yeah. So, cause you got the medal of honor from Cherokee nation for lifetime achievements, right? That's that's right, brother. Yeah, that's really neat. So I had a question about this too. So your solo stuff, because you start, you know, you're doing Mark Farner and then you do Mark Farner's American Band. And then your old bandmate sued you for that band name? What's wrong with that band name? That's your name. Yes. Well, uh, I guess because of the song American Band and because uh, Don uh, has the 100% ownership of it, he was trying to use that and and say that there was confusion in the marketplace uh, of the fans coming to see me rather Mm. than to come to see them. And it's been like that ever since the whole thing started. It's kind of childish stuff. I have to overlook it because I know it's coming from a mind uh, that's not quite with it, that, that there's still that anger and retaliation. They're off their path. Temporarily, those people that look to hurt someone they're they intend to do harm to another person they're off their path this is not natural it is unnatural for that to occur yeah why are they mad at you what what did you ever do i don't know brother Uh, just just me being me and and somebody wanting to be up there instead of me because you even say that you would still get back together with them despite all the what they've done and and all these yeah. uh, b- bad business de- dealings and, and suing you and stuff, you still would rather get together and be grand funk, all three of you. That's right. I would do it for the sake of the fans, brother. I I love the fans. And uh, I always go out. I always, you know, sign autographs. I sign people's uh, records and, and their tapes and CDs and what have you because I want them to know how much I appreciate them. And I love hearing the stories from the fans from there telling me a story. I'm going, Oh my God, this is so cool. The first time they heard this record, it was like, man. And then they paint the the scene for you. It's a, it's magic for me. It just compels me. What's one of the coolest stories you've heard from a fan? Well, like on, uh, Mr. Limousine driver, uh, this guy, was a, a limo driver. He was a fan. Mm-hmm. And he said he pictured himself as the limousine driver for Grand Funk. Every time that song would come on, he's he's the limo guy in the movie running in his head because this was a long time before any videos, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and he would fantasize to that. Uh, I thought that was, that was cute, man. I mean. That's you know, really cool, yeah. I think it's, sorry, no, go ahead. 
No, I say he just kind of let that out of his yeah. heart. And it was good because he was giggling as he was telling me, you know. Yeah, that's great. I, you know what I love? I don't know if you're still doing this, but I heard that what you were doing uh, at one point for your set list is that you were polling fans on the Internet and letting them kind of pick the songs they wanted to hear, basically giving the people what they want, which is like kind of a novel. It doesn't, it shouldn't be a novel idea for musicians, but a lot of them don't, you know, they don't like playing certain songs or whatever, but you're just saying, I'll play what you guys want to hear. Yeah. And, and what we did was have people send in the 10 songs that they would want to hear in the set, their top 10 songs. And so with that list, we were able to make a good set list you know, because uh, we just hit law of averages, pull these, this, this many people saw this, 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 and this. So it gave us a great place to start because you know, you're going to do all the hits and that's going to take, that's going to take half the set anyways. Mm-hmm. What the, the deep cuts and what the fans want to hear, you know, uh, there's only one way to find out. You got to ask them. And, uh, and we're glad we did because, uh, in the set this year, there's there's some things uh, that people haven't heard in 30, 40 years. Like, I Come Tumbling is in the set off E Pluribus Funk. <laughs> okay. It, it's there because so many people said, man, E Pluribus Funk, that is an album that stands out by itself. It's It sounds different. Uh, well, I played it with a white SG that that Stevie Marriott sold me for 200 bucks when they came to America. Uh, he told me about this um, when I was there in Europe with them and, and they were opening for us. He said, I got a guitar, great guitar that you should have. And I said, well, if you, you know, want to bring it to the U S with you, man, I'll buy it from you. He, he charged me $200 for a white SG dude and Stevie Marriott. So oh. uh, that song inspired and uh, not only just uh, the writing of the music on E Pluribus Funk, but it was the guitar that played each one of those songs. And it just seemed that that guitar was like playing butter. I mean, it was mm. so quick. Uh, there was no sticky parts and, and just easy to get around on. So, yeah. Well, and of course, you'll you'll play the song Bad Time. That's one of my favorites. Tell me the story about how you wrote that. It was like, I think it was with your, was it your first wife when you? Yes. And, uh, and we were having a spat and I was sitting in the dining room trying to construct some music. And I was hearing these foul words coming from the kitchen (laughs) (laughs) and I'm sitting there. And then all of a sudden I hear something about a 12 inch cast cast iron skillet going through my forehead and I'm going, Oh, that's a bad word picture right there. Oh my God. This is a bad time to be in love. (laughs) And uh, and the song came forth. That's a great song. Yeah. Um, Gosh, you've done so much uh, cool stuff. You toured, you've toured all over the place. I heard you talking about this, that you went to Japan and that was one of the best places you visited something about explain this, the snow monkeys you got to see, explain this to me. This sounds fascinating. Yeah. The, the snow monkeys, um, they dwell up in, in pine trees, up in the mountains, way up. But there's a park up there where the, the springs that come out of the ground, you know, it's a hot springs, there's mm-hmm. activity up there. And the, the monkeys get in this hot water, this steamy water, 
and it, it smells like a fart, dude. I'm telling you, <laughs> oh, for fart. And, and the signs say, uh, do not feed the monkeys. Do not look the monkeys in the eye. And do not leave infants unattended. Because those female monkeys, they see a baby like that, and it's their instinct to protect it. So they'll go get that baby and they think they're protecting it. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. But uh, there's only 13 rooms in the motel that we stayed in up there. And we had stayed a couple of nights before uh, in some of the hot springs hotels, but it wasn't nearly as uh, severe a smell <laughs> in the spring water. And we got in the, the these pools, and I mean the snowflakes this big are falling down, and you're in a hot pool out there, uh, with looking at the stars. It was a it was a beautiful thing, but when we got up there to the Snow Monkey Park, you know they crap in that water, <laughs> and people get in the water. I'm thinking I am not getting in that water, man. <laughs> it smells too bad, and I see these little baby roots floating around out there in there. You know, wow. this, you know uh, so uh, it was a wonderful trip. Uh, we got to, you know, actually go close to them. I, I wouldn't look them in the eyes, but when they would look away, I would check them out like, wow, these and the ones where we were at uh, these, there was big ones that were uh, average of like five foot. And then there were some that were average three foot and the big ones always came in and ate first. And then when they got their fill, they would file out single file up the mountain and away they'd go. And then the little ones would come in hmm. and then they, they'd get fed. And, uh, it was just great to be there with them and, and see them, you know, swinging from pine trees. Yeah. Like in their natural habitat, not in the zoo where it's like, you know, in this yeah. little cage, that's yeah. kind of cool. So yeah, and you have a you have some other shows coming up. You, you're doing a show with John Karabi. I had him on the show. I love that guy. How do you know him, or well, do you know him? I, I don't. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna know him. Oh, that's the first time is he. I'm assuming. I think he's a fan though, isn't he? I I hope so. I would, <laughs> I hope. But somebody I, put you guys together to do a show, so that's exciting. Yeah, well, uh, it wouldn't be us playing together on stage. Uh, no, no, no. But I mean, you'll, he'll open for you or yes. yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. And then are you working with Mark Slaughter? I heard as well. You have, you guys have yes. a project going. Yes. We just finished one of the tunes that, uh, the first one that we worked on is called anymore. One word anymore. Hmm. Uh, it's a rocker and it, it's a healing song. I tell you, Chuck, it's, it's kind of, it will put to bed some of the what we've been speaking about today. Okay. Such yeah. as, yeah, because you've had so much hardship in your life. So I just, I'm still like amazed. That's what's, I mean, your music obviously is inspiring in itself, but just your story is so inspiring as well. Like, didn't you have a, you had a near death experience when you had your pacemaker put, you died twice. Yes. Uh, so what was that like? You, you said you went to heaven. Yes. As soon as you leave the bone suit, the bone suit. I like that. In the presence of love. And it's where we come from. 
you you realize that this is home. It's like, oh my God, I'm home. Oh man, what was that all about? That that earth years, what was that? But you have the satisfaction and you have the resolve of knowing the purpose of the earth years when you are in that tense, when you are in that state of being. You you know these things. Hmm. But here I couldn't tell you. I didn't bring that kind of knowledge back into this bone suit. Uh, so I'm stuck with the my human intellect, and uh, it, I still got love for for where we're going. You know, I, and now I know because of firsthand experience uh, that on my reentry into my body, it was so apparent what that word D E B T had to do with human existence and then what my father told my uncle woody was uh, they'd be sitting there having some beers after they got done hunting uh they were you know pheasant hunting or upland uh, game hunting and they'd be having a couple and my dad said woody if you want to know where the trouble starts in this world trace that money trail to the top and I didn't know as a little kid what he was talking about, but I know now what he's talking about because there is a certain group of people who tell us that the paper, these Federal Reserve notes that we have in our pocket and in our bank accounts, they tell us what that is worth instead of it being based upon what we are holding as a nation, excuse me, as a nation, it's based upon what they are telling us. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's debt money. Right, yeah. Because in 1933, FDR confiscated all the gold from the American people, gave a 45-day amnesty period by which the people were supposed to turn that gold into Federal Reserve notes. Right. Debt money, debt money. So you got this class of people. It's not about the money to them. If you own the machine that prints money and the world is dangling on your uh, electricity, that's every time you run that, you're going to give them a little bit more, a little bit more to work with, a little bit more to work with. And you're making up the value of this shit off top of your head. You're telling them, yeah, it's worth this. That group of people have lost touch with reality and they are not like us. They are controlling us with the weapon of debt because it's not only uh, the United States that the federal reserve families issued to, they issued to Canada, they issued to Mexico, they issued to South Africa, they issued to India, they issued to Japan. I'm telling you in every country who has fallen prey to these families has succumbed to the, to the debt that they bring because whichever way these families want them to vote in the UN, that's the way they'll vote brother, or they won't be funded anymore. Hmm. Wow. See, it's a crazy mixed up world, but when it's insanity at the top and trust me, that shit is insane. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> trickle down from insanity is not going to be good anywhere it lands on the ladder as evidenced 
by our last couple of years here on earth, brother. Yeah. Well, hopefully things will be getting better with our last couple of years. You said you've seen some, some miracles in your time. Tell me the story about going through an Oak tree. What was this about? Is this real? Oh yes. Yeah. Our, our first manager, we call him big Jim. He was driving a 65 Chevrolet Impala. And, uh, he always drove at least a hundred and most of the time, 120 wherever we'd go. And we were going into Swartz Creek on Morris road. We were northbound and it was a two lane road. And I saw a kid way up the, the road. And I said, back out of it, Jim, that kid, look at that kid up there, man. You don't know what the heck they're going to do. So he backs out of it and he's slowing down. And we got, maybe down to about 60 miles an hour as we're approaching. And this kid's uh, mother was coming out of town southbound on Moorish Road, and she pulled over on the shoulder. And without thinking, this kid stepped out right in front of the car that we were in and was going to, you know, go across to his mother. But he, he then he looked, and, and we were going to kill him. So Jim jerked that car, and we missed him by this far and I could still see his eyes as we went by, but we hit the ditch and it launched us and we were in an arc coming over. I'm, we didn't have seatbelts on. I mean, you know, this is back in the sixties <laughs> and as it's coming over, I look and I see we're going to die. There's three big Oak trees in front of this big farmhouse. And we're going to get that first one. We're headed right for it, and there's no way out of it. I know this. The driver knows this. I immediately whipped around. I got on my knees in the floorboard in the passenger side of that 65 Chevy. I'm going, no, God, not now. Please, not now. Please, God, please. Don't. Bang, 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 bang. The car is on a marker, driveway marker, which was a great big rock. It was like three feet tall. It's, it's hung up on that. We jump down out of the car, go back over. The tire tracks come up to the tree and continue on the other side of the tree. What? Yes, dude. And when the cops got there, wow, this guy has got his clipboard. He's shaking like this, trying, and he's asking me for the third time, and I'm telling him what happened. I'm telling him I prayed. And that's what you're looking at right there. The answered prayer. I said, we went through. It's obvious we went through that tree. <laughs> I mean, that's what it sounds like with the tire tracks. Dude, Jeez. Uh, he, he, has wow. not, he has not written the first word down. His partner has got the wheel, the measuring device that they got on a stick. And he's measuring, you know, where we left the road. And he's measuring up to... And he gets almost to the tree and he he looks like this to look around the tree. He's looking at, and he's got that stick in his hand. And when he saw the the tire tracks continuing on the other side of the tree, he fell down and he was white as a sheet. All the strength in his body left him. He dropped that measuring wheel and the guy that has been asking us what happened he drops his clipboard and his pen 
gets his partner. He helps him up. Come on, look, I'll take you back over to the cruiser. He puts him in the front of the cruiser. And this guy is still just as white as a ghost, man. He didn't think he, he you know, he didn't think he was going to make it there for a, for a minute. Uh, but the guy who had the clipboard walks around, gets in the driver's seat, and the cruiser leaves this scene because they could not put it together, brother. Wow. They could not understand why uh, that that car did what it did. That's <laughs> and crazy. Why we were standing there telling them about it. Wow. So you've got a book, and some of these stories are in your book, uh, From Grand Funk to Grace. And then are you still writing a follow-up where some of these other stories might be in? Yes. I, when I can get around to it, I've got a lot of people that who have encouraged me. And it's it's not like I need more encouragement. It's just I need the time to do it, and I yeah. don't have the time to do it. And I certainly don't have the expertise to do it myself. It's got to be somebody else writing my stories and uh, somebody that can do it. Uh, that, you know, that keeps the interest of the person and that knows how to write a book. I don't know. I, I've never written one. Mm. So uh, I wouldn't want to chance it because I want these stories told in their entirety and I want them uh, understood. Yeah, no, you're a great storyteller. I mean, you just at least do the audio version. You can just tell the stories like you just told. That was amazing. And then um, you've got this, uh, we got to promote your new DVD uh, from Chile with Love. Pe now people can still get this online. Can they still get the autographed copy? Is that still available? It's autographed through the end of the month. It is available okay. through the end of this month. Okay. Wow. And you said that audience was really enthusiastic in Ch in Santiago, Chile, even though they don't speak English, they can sing the songs. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. And it uh, just shows you that, that music has no language barriers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's another way that you're kind of helping bring joy and uh, love into the world is with all, with all your music. Amen, buddy. That's awesome. And then, um, Oh, tell me about the Veterans support foundation. I like to end each episode with a charity. So uh, I think some of the money from the DVD goes to that, right? That's right. The, the DVD, which sells for 1499, uh, it has 16 performance tracks, two bonus videos and five bonus songs on there that have never been released like this before. And, hmm. uh, and $3 from each one of the DVDs goes to Veterans Support Foundation. And Veterans Support Foundation is of veterans. It's made up of veterans. Uh, I met these guys years and years ago. Uh, they are serious brothers, and they are for our troops. There's nobody uh, that knows better than a veteran what these veterans are going through especially our Vietnam veterans who came back and they ran into some shit when they got here, but they have forgiven and they are getting um, our troops that are returning. Now they're getting them into transitional housing. They're getting uh, an uh, audience in front of the veterans, uh, the board of veterans affairs uh, so that they can be compensated for what they have legally earned uh, in service. And so many that return, brother with uh missing limbs or, mm. you know, uh, the families is never going to be the same. And the ones, uh, the families who have lost their loved ones, their son or their daughter in, in a foreign country, you know, uh, this, this is, uh, it's, it's serious. And it, because it's not something embraced by lamestream media, 
um, people don't know. So hmm. for us to make people aware and to thank the ones who are buying the DVD because of that $3 from each one, they are helping. Mm-hmm. It is them enabling us to do what we do for Veterans Support Foundation. So thank you, brothers and sisters. Thank you for your heart and rock real good to this music. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Is there anything else you want to promote at this time? Um, like I said, I think I'll put your uh, website on the show notes so people can check for tour dates. Yes. Just uh, remember to set yourself free. Don't take anything too serious. Everybody leaves this place. We're not taking anything with us but we do go back to where we came from. Set yourself free by setting others free. Forgive others and watch the forgiveness that pours into your life. Watch the change and look for that love. That's great advice. All right. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. All right, brother Chuck. God bless you. Thanks for having me again. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye for now. Well, there you have it. Some of the craziness Mark has been through, but that's not even all of it. So uh, make sure to check out his website in the show notes for tour dates. And uh, I would love to see him live personally, just because I've heard he still sounds great. And there's so many hits that he has. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, uh, check out some of the other interviews I've done, such as with uh, Joey Mullen from Badfinger or uh, my Don McLean interview. And if you like the show, make sure to tell a friend. And uh, make sure to subscribe, too, so that you keep up with future episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, shoot for the moon.